Welcome back to the God Revelation podcast, where we take a verse by verse, chapter by chapter study of the word of God and the book of Revelation out of the New Testament of the Bible, where we also teach and believe what the word of God says in Revelation 1 3, which says blessed is the one who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and keep the things which are written in it. For the time is near. And again, that comes from Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, where our Lord and Savior says, Bless are those who read the book of Revelation, for his time of return is near. And so we take that to heart, and that's the purpose of this podcast is to preach and teach the word of God as he has given it to us in the book of Revelation, as he has revealed his coming and the things to come before his return to this earth. And so we are in the the second chapter and we are specifically looking at the letters that Jesus told John to write on his behalf to the seven local churches at that time, which were, which is also indicative of the various church ages throughout history. Before we pick that up, just a few announcements. You can catch future and past episodes of this podcast and our sister podcast of the Renewing Your Mind with the Word of God podcast, which, which is a verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter study of the New Testament, and we're currently in the book of John. You can catch that podcast and the God Revelation podcast, this podcast, at our website at renewyourmindministries.org. And you can catch any past and future episodes on any podcasting services such as Google Podcasts, Apple or iTunes Podcasts, Amazon Alexa, iHeart, Anywhere you can find or listen to a podcast, you will find both of our podcasts on those services. So I encourage you to go back and look at or listen to past episodes. And I encourage you to share the news that these podcasts are available. If you're listening to either podcast and you're being blessed and your soul is being fed by hearing and studying the word of God, pass that on to others. Let others know about the show so they can so they can listen and be fed as well. God's word is to be spread. Marks 15, 16 says, go into all the world and teach about Jesus. So sharing these podcasts and similar podcasts that are teaching the word of God, you are doing your part to spread the word of God into a lost and dying world. So I encourage you to share the podcast. Also, if you need prayer or need to contact me, you can email me at renew your mind, the letter M as in Mary at gmail.com. That's renew your mind M at gmail.com or you can write us at P.O. Box 721143, Jackson, Mississippi, 39272. Again, if you do not want to email or just feel comfortable writing, you can write to me, Brother Arnold, that's A-R-N-O-L-D, at P.O. Box 721143, Jackson, Mississippi, 39272. And believe me, if you email me or write me, I will take your prayer request 
to God. I'm not claiming that my prayers will get to God any faster, but our Lord and Savior in his word commends us to pray for one another. And so I want to pray for you. And if you send that prayer request in or need to contact me, definitely I will do so. So please feel free to do so. Now, going back to the program, when we last left off, we had finished looking at that out of the seven, three of the churches. And and the goal today is to finish the rest of the churches. But briefly, as a recap, the book of Revelation was written by John, one of the original disciples of Jesus. At this time, John had been exiled onto the island of Patmos, where he was doing hard labor. And during the course of his exile on the island of Patmos, God revealed to him this book. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he put those things that he was shown in onto paper. And we have it today to bear to study God's word when we can see the signs of those things that are to come before our Lord and Jesus returns to this earth. And on our last program, we looked at Jesus told John to write these specific letters to these specific churches on his behalf. And in the last program, we looked specifically at the letters written to the churches at Ephesus, Smyrna and Pergamum, or in some translation, it has Pergamos. And so today we're going to pick up on Revelation uh, chapter 2, verse 18. We are in Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. 18. But so before we get into that, let's pray. Father God, in the mighty name of Jesus, we thank you for you. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for your love, your mercy, your grace. But most of all, we thank you for your only begotten son, Jesus. We thank you that you sent him to die for our sins, that we may have everlasting life with you. We thank you and we praise you for that. We thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus, for being our Lord and Savior, for dying for our sins. We thank you for sending back the Holy Spirit to be a help, a comfort, a counsel, and a guide. We thank you for your holy word that we're now studying. And we ask in the mighty name of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you open up your word, that we are able to receive it and understand it. Father God, in the mighty name of Jesus, I thank you for using me to teach your word. Lord, I ask that you empower me to teach your word the way you would want me to say it and how you would want me to say it, O oh Lord, that you and you alone would get the glory. We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. And so we're going back to Revelation. We're in the book of Revelation, which is the last book in the New Testament, chapter 2, verse 18, where we're going to look at the church at Thyatira. Thyatira. Again, continuing our, our look at these of Jesus' letters to the seven churches of Asia. And so if you would get open, open your Bible or open your Bible app and let's look at these verses and break them down. Verse number 18 out of chapter two. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, these are the words of the son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Once again, we see in verse 18 that Jesus identify himself as the speaker here by his reference to himself as being the son of God, which he is. The church at Thyatira is representative of the church history from roughly 580 AD to 1500 AD. 
Moving on to verse number 19 of chapter 2 in the book of Revelation. I know your deeds, your love and faith, and your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. In this verse, Jesus commend the believers at Thyatira for good works, for love, for faith, for their service and patience and endurance. In verse number 20, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. In verse number 20 of chapter 2 of the book of Revelation, Jesus complained against the church at Thyatira. It tolerated a false prophet named Jezebel. This dangerous woman was persuading members of the church to practice immorality and idolatry. Apparently, she promoted certain pagan sexual practices. Because you got to think, remember during this time, what would later be called Christians were in a world full of idolatry. It was all around them. And so when you had this group of people who was claiming there was only one God and that his son, he sent his only begotten son, Jesus, to die for the world, that was foreign to the world because they had worshiped and were still worshiping many multiple gods. And so when Jesus came on the scene, the world just didn't submit. It continued to practice that idolatry. And ultimately, we're going to see that those practices infiltrated the early church and are still in the church and some churches today. But going back to this verse number 20, she condoned the eating of foods dedicated to idols. And so that creeped into that church, the sexual practices that related to the worship of those idol, those pagan and idol gods and the, and the eating of foods that was dedicated to these idols, all that stuff creeped into the church at Thyatira through this woman named Jezebel. Now we don't know who this woman is was the name Jezebel may have been her actual name or simply a pseudonym in the old testament there was a woman named Jezebel who, who was the wife of the king Ahab of Israel she was a vicious violent woman who promoted the worship of Baal an idol god which is no god at all the sun god and killed many of God's prophets because they were against her idolatry also, she sought unsuccessfully to kill the prophet Elijah. You can check that story out in the Old Testament in 1 Kings chapter 16 through 22. And some Bible scholars believe that Jezebel, the Jezebel that was referred to in this verse in the letter to the church of Thyatira, may have even been the wife of the church's pastor. Whatever her role in the church she was extremely influential based upon this scripture because she was leading the people, God's people, into practices that were against God. Moving on to verse 21 in the book of Revelation chapter 2. I have given her time, referring back to Jezebel in, chapter, in verse 20, to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. In a remarkable display of grace, Jesus has given this woman identified as Jezebel in this in these verses time to repent like he's given all of us. He's God has given us so much grace and so much time to repent. And yet some of us fail to 
do it. And he's given this woman time to repent. And we're going to see what's happened. But despite her leading Christians into immorality. So even though she was doing these terrible things, God was giving her time to repent, which means turn from her ways, change her mind. But we see, we're going to see she's not going to do it. However, she rejected Jesus' kindness and did not repent. Verse number 22. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of their ways of her ways. And I'm reading from the NIV version. So the words that I'm reading may not be exactly as you see them, depending on the version that you read. For some reason, I like the NIV version. It helps me to understand. And if I always I say that if you're reading a version of the Bible, specifically the King James Version, where they're using old English that we do not use today, and you're struggling to read the word of God, Pray about it and find to be led to a version of the Bible that you can read and understand. And for me, for the most part, it's NIV. It's not the only version of the Bible I read, but it's mainly the one I read because it's written in, in the English in the way we speak today without changing the meaning of the word. I always say be careful of the paraphrase because a paraphrase Bible is where somebody not giving you a word by word translation from the Greek, Hebrew and Aramaic, but giving you an, what they believe the word says. And that's dangerous. So make sure you're not getting a paraphrase Bible, but getting a word for word translation. I like the NIV. There are other ones out there that's good. The Amplified version or the New American Standard Bible. So get you a Bible. If you have a Bible and you're not reading, pray to God to lead you to the version that you can read and understand. But going back to Revelation chapter 2, verse 22. In this verse, Jesus pronounced judgment on this woman identified as Jezebel and her followers. Despite being offered opportunity to repent, as we just saw in an earlier verse, this woman was still tempting Christians, God people, towards sexual sins and idolatry. Despite this mercy, Jesus will not let her wicked activity go unchecked. He already said that he's going to put a stop to the depraved influence she's had over the church. He promised her in this in this verse to throw her into a sick bed, bedridden. She would be too weak and too ill to continue to corrupt the church. He also said in this verse that he's going to do that to her followers too. They're going to experience Jesus' judgment. If they fail to repent, he's given them time to repent, just like he gave us. If they fail to repent of their evil doing, he's going to throw them into great tribulation. That's what we see in that verse. Moving on to verse 23. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Here, Jesus promised to strike Jezebel followers dead. Because she's corrupting his people by this idolatry and sexual immorality. All these things corrupting the local church and he's not going to stand for it. Jesus reminds us that he knows the minds and the hearts of all. And he repays each person's according to their works. Good works. We're not saved by works. But the Bible does talk about being receiving reward for our works and punishment for our bad behavior and works. Moving on to verse 24. Now I say to the rest of you in Tharatara, to you who do not hold to hear teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. 
Jesus recognized that at least some members of this church at Thyatira has resisted Jezebel's corrupting teaching and behavior. Jesus promised in the verses to spare the remnant of faithful believers from any other further burdens. Revelation number 25 out of chapter 2. Except to hold on to what you have until I come. And this verse, verse 25, those who were faithful were admonished to continue their works of love and faith and service and patience and endurance from chap- from verse 19. They are to hold on until Jesus returns. Verse 26, to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. Jesus promised in verse 26 to reward everyone who honors him until the end. He will grant the overcomer, those are the believers, true believers, a position of authority over the nations as we will see in Revelation 24. We got to get there. We're going to be in Revelation for a long time. Moving on to verse number 27. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. Jesus announced in verse 27 that he will give the conqueror the authority to rule the nations with with a rod iron. This ruling action will be in in cooperation with Jesus because when he's coming back, he's coming back the king of kings. Psalms 2.9 predicted Jesus will rule the nations with a rod. Look that up, Psalms 2.9. Jesus will rule the nation with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The word rod here refers to a shepherd's staff. Jesus will be not only king over the nations, but also their shepherd. Verse number 28, I will also give that one the morning star. This continues Jesus' encouragement to the overcomers. We see this over again, the word overcomers, those who in, those believers who endure and withstand the persecution and hardship, particularly in this church in Thyatira, but any overcomer, any believer that has endured to the end, Jesus promised to give them the morning star. The faithful in the church was surrounded by moral and spiritual darkness and still are today. But the time will come when they will experience the glorious rays of our Lord and Savior, Jesus, the bright and morning star. We'll have him in verse number 29. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the spirit says to the church. Jesus concludes his letters to the church at Thyatira by challenging them to hear what the Spirit says. Since all the messages are included in a single written form, it seems that Jesus wants each church to read, including today, and understand the messages given to the other churches, even to the day. Those letters were just not for those seven churches. Those letters was meant for every believer, every church until he returns. How one hears the word of God is extremely important. James tells us we should not simply hear God's word and immediately forget it. Instead, James calls for us to obey what we hear. God wants us to hear and obey the hearer and doer of the word. James declared would be blessed and what he does. And you'll find that in James 1 25. So we're just not to be hearers, but we are also called to be doers of the word as well. And that concludes 
Revelation chapter 2. Moving on into the next chapter and the next church, the church at Sardis, we begin Revelation chapter 3, starting with verse number 1, moving on to the seventh church in which Jesus is writing to. Revelation 3.1 says, To the angel of the church in Sardis, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Again, this is the fifth of the seven letters from Jesus that is addressed to the church of Sardis. The Sardis church represent the church age that began around 1520 A.D. and extended into the tribulation. This is the period where we see the Protestant church rise and the Protestant church or the Protestant movement started in Europe with Martin Luther, who declared that the way the Roman Catholic Church were doing things in which the Pope and the priests were the only ones who were allowed to read the Bible, declared that everyone should have the ability to read the word of God in their own language, among other reforms. In this church age is where you begin to see the Protestant movement, which continues to this day. And in this particular letter to the church of Sardis, as the all-wise head of the church, Jesus knew the church in Sardis had a reputation that didn't match reality. His reputation alleged that it was alive, but spiritually it was dead. Here we see also the reference to the seven spirits of God in the Jesus is indicating or referring to the Holy Spirit. Moving on to the next verse, Revelation 3, 2. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. In this verse, Jesus commanded the church at Sardis to wake up. It had fallen into a slumber in which it supposed everything was fine when it was not. It took for granted that it could go on indefinitely without changing its attitude. It assumed it could live on his reputation, but it was a false assumption. Jesus described the church's works as incomplete under God's scrutiny. There was still work to be done. And although the church seemed active and alive spiritually, it was dead because there was no focus on Jesus anymore. There was no focus on his word. It was all about works. It was all about reputation of being alive, having a good reputation of an active church, yet the spirit of God was there. There was no Jesus there. There was no teaching and preaching and focus on the word of God in the form of the Bible. And therefore, it was dead, and the works were unfinished. Moving on to Revelation chapter 3, verse 3. And I'm again, I'm reading from the NIV version. So your words of the translation of the Bible that you may be reading may be different from mine. But going back to verse number three, remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. In this verse, Jesus Jesus challenged the church to remember, recapture, and repent. The church need to recall the truth it had when it first received the word of God. The Lord had given the truth to the church. 
any church that is sliding away from the truth of God must remember its initial encounter with Christ. We often see that in the church, even unto this day, that the church is on fire for God. The church is on fire for the word of God and the things of God. But as the world creep in, as Satan creep in, as humanism creep in, we are more focused on everything but God. We're more focused on doing activities. We're more focused on getting a good reputation and all that focus removes the focus off the central thing and, and person. That is our Lord and Savior Jesus and his word. Here, Jesus challenged the church as Sardis to repent. To repent, to change its mind about what, is in, what it was doing. Instead of continue to slumber, thinking its current condition was all right, Jesus commanded them to wake up. To wake up. The church cannot assume it has already done enough for God. If the church of Sardis did not wake up, Jesus would come like an unexpected and unwelcome thief. Christian churches who slumber in complacency do not live up to their high calling in Jesus Christ. We can never rest on our reputation. We can never rest on our laurels. We must always be woke and waiting for the return of focusing on God and waiting for the return of our Lord and Jesus Christ because he is coming back to this earth. And we can't slumber and not be diligent and watch. And just when he's talking about he'll come unexpected like a thief. A thief doesn't announce when he's coming, when you can get ready for him. He come unexpectedly. So the, Jesus is commanding the church to be on constant lookout, obeying his word and on the lookout for his return. Moving on to Revelation 3, 4. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me in dress in white, for they are worthy. All was not lost in the church of Sardis, as we see in verse number 4. In this verse, Jesus explained there are a few faithful believers in Sardis who's kept focus on Jesus, who, kept, who has kept focus on his word. They have avoided the corruption that have permeated the culture then and now. They're alive. So we see a glimmer of hope here that is not everybody, but those people are in the minority. The white garment that is mentioned here is symbolic of righteousness, as we will see in Revelation 18 and 7 and 14, chapter 7 and 14. Moving on to Revelation 3, 5. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. In verse number five, Jesus extends three promises to every faithful believer at Sardis. First, he will grant him white garments, white clothing that is, that is given to the faithful represent not only honor, but also purity and righteousness. Isaiah wrote, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garment of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. And you can find that in Isaiah 61.10. Again, going back to what the white garment represent salvation, righteousness, which only comes from God. 
The second promise that Jesus gives here in chapter Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, is that he promised he will not blot out the faithful believer's name out of the book of life. And when one quickly reads this part of the verse, it seems to imply that a believer's name can be blotted out from the book of life, which represents salvation. So in other words, some people have taken this part of the verse to mean that a person can lose their salvation. I am not in that camp. I am in the camp of once saved, always saved. And there is plenty of biblical verses to support that. Now, I understand a lot of people believe differently, and that's all right. I'm not going to fall out with you over your differences of whether or not one saved or always saved or you can somehow lose your salvation. But I won't, for the sake of full disclosure, I am in the camp of one saved, always saved. And here's why. Our salvation is by grace alone through faith, meaning that we as believers cannot earn our way to salvation. Going to church, reading our Bibles, doing good, while all those things are commendable and have value, we do not gain our salvation from that. We gain our salvation by the mere fact that our Lord and Savior, the only begotten Son of Jesus, died for our sins and that the Father and Father God raised him from raised him from death after he was buried because he was sinless. And by accepting through faith that Jesus died for our sins and was raised from the dead, that's how we are saving, confessing and believing that. So trusting in the work of Jesus, that's him paying our sins, conquering death and opening the way to the Father, is anyone saved? And furthermore, when we look at when Jesus spoke to the Pharisee Nicodemus in the book of John, chapter 3, verses 3 through 8, he talked about the born-again experience, that in order to inherit the kingdom of God, that we have to be born again. And how we're born again, we're born in the spirit by receiving, confessing and receiving that Jesus died for our sins and was raised from the dead and his only begotten son of the father. And due to that, the new spirit man is born. And that spirit man is not constantly living and dying based upon what we're doing. So we, we can be secure in our salvation because that new man is now alive based upon the fact of our belief and confession of Jesus. Jesus and the Father holds us securely and would never let us go. He tells us that in John 10, verses 28, 30, which says, I give them eternal life. Who is them? The believers. They shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, 
No one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. And again, I was reading from the book of John, chapter 10, verse 28 through 30, where Jesus is talking about believers that no one, he's one, giving them eternal life, given us as believers, if you're a believer, eternal life. And he's saying that anybody that the father's given him, no one can take them away. And as it goes on in the book of Romans, nothing can separate us from the love of God. So we can be secure in our salvation because our salvation is not based upon anything that we have done or could do. It's based upon the works of Jesus, which is done and complete. He said it's finished. It is finished. Also look at Romans chapter 5, verse 8 through 9. God demonstrate his own love toward us in that we while we were still sinners, Christ died for us much more than having now been justified by his blood. We shall be saved from wrath through him. So that again shows us what our salvation is based upon is based upon the blood of Jesus that we're saving and we're saved from the wrath of Father God, not these good works. We're saved unto works, meaning that once we're saved, we're called to do good works, but though good works doesn't save anybody. So failing to do good works, not going to lose your salvation. You can't lose your salvation because there was nothing you did to earn the salvation. Therefore, there's nothing you can do to keep the salvation because the salvation is sustained by the eternal spilling of Jesus' blood for our sins. Finally, when it comes to my belief of why we once save, always save. Jesus is faithful and true. Look at verse Revelation chapter three, verse 14, Revelation 19, 11, Revelation 22, six. And he has promised our eternal security. Look at Hebrews 13, five. He himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you in these verses i point them out to show the security of the finished work of the cross and the blood of jesus and if you accepted that there's nothing you can do to make your spirit man unborn again and lose that salvation to me based upon these scriptures and many others i am my feet are on firm a firm foundation that one save always say so going back to verse number five out of the book of revelation when it's talking about will not blot your name out of the book of life so what does that mean therefore the overcoming in revelation 3 5 should not be read as a condition of salvation that's not a condition of salvation so in other words if if you overcome you will not be blotted out and if you don't overcome you will be blotted out that's not the way to read that there's nothing that we can do to earn salvation. There's nothing we can do to cause us to lose it. This verse simply means, and Jesus is telling us that you're secure as an overcomer, as a believer, that your name would never be erased out of the book of life. That's what he's meaning there. That's what he means there. That's what he's saying there. Because every born again person as eternal life, you're not winning it again. The next day you're losing it and the next day you got it back. And then the next day you're doing it. No, you have eternal life and that possession is yours forever. Look at John chapter five, verse 24, 
John 6, 35 through 37, John 6, verse 39, John 10, 28 through 29, Romans 8, 1. I don't have time to go into each one of those verses, but when you, it's clearly show through the God's word because it's his work that we are saved and it's by his work that we keep our salvation. There's nothing that we can do. So that verse does not mean you can lose your salvation. It's quite the opposite. Matter of fact, it's pretty much, it's not pretty much, it is saying your name would never be erased out of the Lamb's book of life as a believer. All right, moving on to that third promise that's shown in verse number five. Jesus assures the faithful believers that he will confess his name before the fathers, before the father. That's the believer's name. In a public ceremony in heaven, Jesus would acknowledge that these overcoming and enduring and faithful conquerors here in Sardis belongs to him. Moving on the revelation chapter three, verse six, which says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the spirit says to the churches. This verse, verse number six calls upon everyone with ears as spiritual ears to pay attention to Jesus inspired messages to the church and obey the instructions, not just to hear, but to obey. All these letters were to be read by the local churches in Asia Minor, which is present-day a part of Turkey, and is instructive to us believers today. We are to hear and act upon the words that we are reading in the book of Revelation for the accommodations to the churches as well as the criticism to make sure that we're not falling into those things moving on to the next church which i believe is representative of the church age that we're in now one of them anyway and we'll see the next one after this the church of laodicea but the church of philadelphia that we're going to find in revelation 3 7 Revelation 3, 7, where Jesus writes to the church of Philadelphia and Revelation 3, 7 says to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, but what he shuts, no one can open. This period represent the church age from approximately 1750 until the rapture. And I believe that we're that the church age that we're in now, part of it is represented by what we're going to see in the church at Philadelphia. Jesus's letter to the church at Philadelphia identifies him as holy and true, which he is because Jesus is holy. He cannot lie. Therefore, he is both holy and true. Hebrews seven tells how Jesus is a better priest than the priests of Israel. Verse 26 of Hebrews describe Jesus as a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above in heaven. Going back to this verse saying that he is holy. He is holy. In John chapter 14, verse six, Jesus identifies himself to his disciples as the truth. So in Verse seven, we know this is Jesus because he identifying himself as holy and the truth, which he is. So that's 
That's signaling that this is Jesus who is writing this. Jesus also identifies himself in this verse as the one who is the key of David. Because Jesus is the son of David. And, the, and when I say the son of David, Jesus' bloodline through Mary is related to King David, the greatest king of the Jewish people in history. And the scriptures foretold that Jesus would come from the bloodline of David. And through Mary, his earthly mother, he did. So based upon his descendancy from David, he is the undisputable, he has the undisputable right to the royal line and ultimately the throne. That's why he, Israel has been promised a king and the king will rule the nations. And that king, the king of kings is Jesus. So that's why he says he's the key of David. It is also true here that Jesus holds the key to open and shut a door that no one can open that he says in this verse. He was able to use the key to open the doors of the opportunities to the church of Philadelphia to advance the gospel in Asia. Further, he could use the key to lock out the church enemies. Moving on to verse number eight, Revelation. We're in the book of Revelation, chapter three, verse eight, which reads, I know your deeds. Again, this is Jesus talking to the, ch the church of Philadelphia. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Jesus knows the good works of the church of Philadelphia. The door open here possibly speaks of mission works. The church covering this era undoubtedly is doing more than any other group ever attempted to do as far as missions. In this church age, there's, there's never been a time of such mission work, and that is the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior all through the world. We see this in this church age. We've seen it during that time, at least in Philadelphia, and is indicative and representative of the church now. We have an explosion in missions, believers spreading the word of God throughout this earth as we've been commissioned to do and even more so because based upon what we're going to eventually see in this book, the signs of his return is more likely now than ever that our Lord and savior will come back. And therefore he wants us out there preaching and teaching him. So people can come to salvation and avoid his wrath. So that's what he's speaking about. Going back to verse number Eight, although this is a small group that he's speaking to, they're the minority. They have little strength. That's what we're referring to. This is a small group of people that's doing this good work. Like it's always in. If you look at most statistics, they show that there's a small percentage of people that's in the church, believers, that's actually doing the work, which is a shame. And we saw that that was then, and unfortunately that's now. So when it says their strength, they had little strength. This is a small group of people that was doing this work. One of their greatest strength is that they kept his name. They kept the name of Jesus. They didn't deny his name. When the pressure was on, 
They kept his word. They was obedient to his word. They taught his word. They didn't deny his name under the pressure. And God says, if you deny me, I will deny you before the father. If you acknowledge me, I will acknowledge you before the father. And that's a great thing. We don't want to be denied before the father. Don't want that. Moving on to verse number nine in the book of Revelation, still focusing on the letter to the church at Philadelphia. Verse nine reads, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Apparently, the Jews or the false professors of faith of Philadelphia made life hard for the believers in Philadelphia. Jesus said to these offenders were Jews in name only. He called them liars. They actually belonged to Satan and served him. Jesus promised to compel these false Jews, these liars, to acknowledge the believers' valid faith in him and recognize that Jesus loved them as believers. This most likely is a reference to the ultimate victory of good over evil, the day when all false teachers, all false religions will have to bow before Jesus and confess that he is Lord. And the word says that in Philippians 2, verses 9, verses 9 through 11. And us believers will witness this triumphant event where the enemies of God and believers will bow and acknowledge and confess him as Lord. And you can find that in Revelation. If you want to jump ahead, find that, find that in Revelation 20, verses 12 through 15. Moving on to the next verse, verse 10 out of Revelation 3, which reads, since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Jesus did not bring any accusations against this church at Philadelphia. If you can go back to those other churches, oftentimes he would describe what things they were doing good, and then he would go on to Describe the things they were doing bad. We don't get the bad part here in Philadelphia. There is no allegations or accusation uh, against the church at Philadelphia. Only Philadelphia and Smyrna have this distinction of Jesus not having anything against them. Rather, instead, he commends them to patiently endure. Because the church showed so much patience, Jesus promised to keep them from the hour of trial. Jesus' words make it clear that the church will not go through the hour of trial, a reference which is a reference to the tribulation, the seven-year tribulation that we're going to eventually get to, which is going to be a seven-year period. Once the church is raptured, we're going to see this in the book of Revelation, once the church is raptured or taken out of this earth, there's going to be a seven-year period of intense, intense earthly distress and a lot of bad things going on. And you don't want to be here when those things are going on. And the only way not to be here is to be a believer in Jesus Christ. And when he comes and rapture or take the church out of the earth, you won't have to go through it. But, oh, at the end of that seven years, he's coming again. He's coming again with all victory, with power and might to establish his kingdom. And we're going to get we're going to see that in this book. So just hold on. Going back to the great tribulation and the fact that the church will not be here. The Greek word translated from from is ek, 
E-K, meaning out of. Unlike other forms of hardships where God promised to be with us or to keep us through or in those times of difficulty, the church here would be helped out of. The Greek word there is out of the tribulation. If the church was destined to be kept through the tribulation, another Greek word meaning through would have been used. But that word through was not there, out of. So I'm saying all that to say this, this support that the church, that I believe the church we're living in, the church age we're living in now, the Philadelphia, and we're going to see the the opposite side in uh, Lycodicea, will be raptured out. And therefore, that's why we'll be out of the time of trial of trial or the tribulation. So the church will not be here based upon this verse and what we're going to see later on in this book and other verses through God's word. Further in this verse, this verse tells us that the hour of trial or the tribulation is coming on the whole world, not on the church. It didn't say in the church. It says in the whole world. The judgment unleashed in this tribulation will fall on those who are still dwelling on the earth, the non-believers. Jesus is going to take the church out, the Christians, the believers, before the tribulation began in the rapture. And so all that is setting this up. Moving on to the next verse, verse 11. I am coming soon. This is Jesus speaking. Hold on to what you have so that no one would take your crown. In this verse, verse 11, Jesus promised to come soon, which in the Greek text means something that would happen quickly or suddenly, not necessarily in a short period of time. So oftentimes people say, well, he's saying I'm coming soon. It's been 2,000 years later. You know, that, that's not soon. So when he's saying here, when he comes, it's going to be quickly or sudden. So he's not talking about I'm coming in a short period of time. He's talking about the way he's going to come. He's going to come quickly and suddenly, boom. In the meantime, he urged the believers in this verse to keep grip on the truth and on their loyalty to him. By doing so, they would prohibit the enemy from grabbing their crown or their reward. So when he says crown here, he's not referring to salvation, referring to a reward. The Bible talks about that we're going to have rewards in heaven. And so what he's telling them, he's telling them, hold on, hold on, and ultimately and you will be rewarded. Verse number 12, the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I would also write on him my new name. In verse number 12 of the book of Revelation, chapter three, Jesus promised to the conquerors, that's to us believers, a, to be pillars in God's temple. It's interesting to note that the ancient city of Philadelphia was vulnerable to earthquakes that collapse and which buildings would collapse. By contrast here, God is suggesting that nothing could cause the believers in Philadelphia to tremble and fall, thus being a pillar. They would stand like a firm column in God's temple, a reference to heaven. Jesus also promised to inscribe on these, these overcomers, believers, the name of the Father, the name of New Jerusalem, and Jesus' own name. New Jerusalem would descend from heaven when Jesus established his residency here on earth. And you can read ahead and you'll find that in Revelation 21, 
verses 9 through 27. So a lot of these things that we're talking about now, we're going to get into more details in this book. This is the very beginning of this book, so you just hang tight with us. We're going to go into all this in more detail, but if you want to read ahead, you can read about the New Jerusalem coming out of heaven in Revelation chapter 21, verses 9 through 27. But we're going to get there. Hang tight. Hebrews 13, 14 points out that believers do not have a permanent residence on this earth. We are The Bible, the Word tells us that we are sojourners. We're visitors. This is not our permanent home. But we look forward to living in the permanent home, the permanent city of New Jerusalem. That's where the believers will live, in the New Jerusalem. Possessing the name of our Heavenly Father, the name of the New Jerusalem, and the new name of Jesus suggests that believers will receive honor that would abide forever, referring back to the promises in verse number 12. Moving on to verse number 13. Whoever has ears... Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Yes, plural. So these, once again, even though these letters are written specifically to a specific church, they are good for all believers to read and heed. This verse challenged believers once again to heed what the Spirit says to the churches. The corrections, the challenges, the promise given to the churches of Asia Minor are appropriate for us believers even to this day. So we must not just simply read them for our intellectual improvement, but rather we must read them for our spiritual good. The last church, the church at Laodicea, which I also believe is currently in this church age, which we will see shortly. And you will find this church in verse 14. So now we're going to discuss the final church and the book of Revelation chapter 3, the church at Laodicea. Verse 14 reads, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. This is the final letter to the church at Laodicea and covers the church history age from approximately 1900 to and through and or through the tribulation. Jesus is identified as the Amen. In Hebrew, Amen means true. The complete meaning is truth in its finality, which pictures Jesus as the final truth, which he is. In this verse, Jesus also identifies himself as the faithful and true witness because he is True. Finally, in verse number 13 of chapter 3 of the book of Revelation, Jesus is identified as the ruler or beginning of creation of God. In some translation, it has the beginning of creation, which means Jesus is the creator. John, in his book, in the book of John, also can be found in the New Testament, stated Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made, referring to Jesus. So Jesus is the great creator. Also in verse number 14, Jesus is identifying himself as the writer of this book through the disciple John. Moving on to verse 15, which states, I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. 
In this verse, Jesus tells the Lycodicean church in this verse that he knows its condition. He says they are neither cold nor hot, although he would prefer they be one or the other. It was simply content to maintain the status quo. We will see when it comes to the church of Laodicea that Jesus offer no praise for this church. No praise. Unlike the church at Sardis that had some things that remained and need to be strengthened and the other churches that it commended for doing, we don't see that here in the church as at Laodicea. The church at Laodicea had nothing that needed to be strengthened because they had nothing to strengthen. They were neither hot nor cold. In some ways, the church exists today. Even in today, there are some churches that are neither hot nor cold. Jesus would later on describe them as lukewarm. That's why I say this church, the church is Laodicean, is also represented in the current church age. We have the church at Philadelphia where they're doing where they have not denied the word of God. They've embraced the word of God. They've embraced Jesus. They're working in missions and trying to and are spreading the word of God throughout the world. And then we have at the same time, the churches lying to see them where they're not, they're denying them the work of God. They're denying Jesus. They're lukewarm. They're neither hot nor cold. And therefore I believe both of these churches existing at the same time in this current age. Moving on to verse 16, which says, So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Such liquids are distasteful, and for good reason, they're more likely to harbor disease. Today, on a hot day, people could drink a cold drink and refresh. On a cold day, you can drink a hot drink and invigorate. But no one enjoys a lukewarm drink. The lukewarm taste of the Laodicean religious life made Jesus feel so sick. He felt like vomiting the church out of his mouth. Wow, that's a, that's a statement. This present a useful analogy for evangelism. Those who are spiritually hot are engaged in their faith. They're on fire for God. They're on fire for Jesus. They're on fire for the things of God. Those who are cold have an opportunity to be influenced in a powerful way by the gospel. But those who are lukewarm are actually in a worse condition than those who are cold. The lukewarm people, they know just enough about Jesus, so they're not resistant, but they're also somewhat callous to his voice. From Jesus' perspective in this verse, it's actually better to be spiritually cold. Since that means you're more likely to notice the calling of God to mean lukewarm. Imagine that, that our Lord and Savior said he were, he's going to spit them out because of the lukewarmness. There is, this also is indicative. There is no in-between. We need to be on fire for Jesus. And for those who are not on fire for Jesus, witnessing to those to bring them to be on fire for Jesus. Moving on to verse 17. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. In verse 17, we find a big contrast between the church at Laodicea 
and its views of itself as opposed to Jesus' view of them. The people in the church of Laodicea saw itself as rich and prosperous, and they probably were. But Jesus saw it as poor. While they had riches and prosperity in material things, spiritually, they were bankrupt. Spiritually, they were poor because their focus was not on Jesus. Their focus was not on the word of God. Their focus was on materialism, wealth, which in of itself, there's nothing wrong with those things. However, if they become the object of your faith, then according to this verse, that you are, that person is spiritually poor. The church felt it needed, it didn't need anything, but actually it needed only Jesus. But because it had material things, those material things replaced Jesus. With all this wealth, Jesus described the church as wretched, meaning unhappy, pitiful, meaning miserable. It is possible to possess money and material possession, but feel miserable. We see it all the time in the celebrity culture. When we look at them, we see that they have everything that you would think that would make a person happy, the notoriety, the wealth. But yet, oftentimes they talk about how depressed they are, how lonely they feel, how miserable they are. And I'm not bashing them. What I'm saying is that they show us Improve what the word of God show us. Wealth and materialism, absent Jesus, did not bring you happiness. Jesus, going back to this verse, Jesus also recognized the spiritually impoverished people at the church of Laodicea were also blind and naked. It mentioned that they were blind and naked in this verse. It did not see any of the need to trust in the Lord or to evangelize to the lost. It had no vision because as long as they had their material wealth, there was no need to do anything else. They didn't need anything, and there was no need to tell anybody else about Jesus. There was no need to trust in Jesus. They were trusting in their wealth. They had no vision. Again, I'm not bashing having things. I'm not bashing wealth. But when your faith is in those things, then that's not biblical. Our faith should always be in Jesus. And it was naked. They were naked because they were not clothed in Jesus' righteousness. We have to be clothed in Jesus' righteousness. In and of ourselves, in and of ourselves, we are wretched people. But once we come as a believer to accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, he clothes us in his righteousness. Not in our own righteousness, but in his righteousness. But this church has not put any trust in Jesus, and therefore they're naked. They don't have their righteousness. In their eyes, their righteousness is their material possessions and their wealth. Moving on to verse 18, out of the book of Revelation chapter 3. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear them so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and solve to put on your eyes so you can see. The apostle Peter described faith and approved the test of fire as much more valuable than gold. That's 1 Peter 1.7. Let's look at that. 1 Peter 1.7 says, and this is the NIV version, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith 
of greater worth than gold, which perished even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus is revealed. So in other words, going back to this verse when it was saying purchase gold, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire so you can become rich in clothes to wear. Jesus is saying here why the church at Laodicea boasted about their wealth, but what they needed was genuine faith. Faith that is far more valuable than material wealth, as 1 Peter 1.7 was talking about. Our having faith is more valuable than material gold, material wealth. Jesus offered this church, the church at Laodicea, their members, white garments of salvation and righteousness that would cover their spiritual nakedness. So he, what he's saying in the beginning part of verse 18 is get some faith, develop your faith in Jesus. Trust in me. Put on my white clothing of salvation and righteousness and stop putting your faith in material wealth and materialism over me and things of me and things of the spirit. When it comes to the part about in salves and put salves, that's S-A-L-V-E, to put on your eyes so you can see, whether that is referring to as this region was well known for its production of eye salves that was used to treat a number of eye diseases. So what Jesus is referring to here is offering them what could be used for their spiritual blindness, put on spiritual salves so they can no longer be spiritually blind. That would mean them trusting in Jesus and in his word. So what he's saying here is symbolically speaking, if the Laodiceans applied the Asav Jesus offered, they would be able to see their lukewarm condition and subsequently repent. He wants them to open their eyes spiritually and see what condition they're in and make some changes. Moving on to verse 19, which says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. In verse 19, Jesus summons the church at Laodicea to mend their ways and to be fervent about repenting, to be serious about repenting of their ways of leaving the materialism alone and coming back to Jesus. He explained that he rebukes and disciplines those whom he loves. So he's trying to show in this verse that he loves them and he's offering this rebuke and discipline because he loves them. Just like in our human nature, our parents disciplined us because they love us. Hebrews 12, 10 explains the father disciplines, fathers discipline their children for a short time as it seemed best to them. But our heavenly father disciplines us for our own good, that we may share in his holiness. Although the discipline is painful, it doesn't last forever. And it produces righteousness in us. Hebrews 12, 11. When we undergo discipline, we should not think God has abandoned us. Oh, by no means. 
Indeed, he's investing time in our spiritual education. His purpose is to make us better, not bitter. So Hebrews 12, 10 through 11 tells us that our Heavenly Father, he disciplined us for our own good, that we may repent or change our minds and return to him and share in his holiness. Moving on to verse number, which says, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and open the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Verse 20 here pictures Jesus standing outside the church at Laodicea and knocking at his door to be welcomed and admitted into the church. He does not force himself upon the church but patiently waits to be invited in. If the church at Laodicea had invited Jesus to enter, undoubtedly he would enter the church, but the church did not invite him in. Again, this is the church that had no praise. This is the church that Jesus said was lukewarm and that he would spit him out his mouth. This church didn't want Jesus, yet it was rich in material things. So Jesus looked for an invitation from any responsive individual. He promised to fellowship with whoever would hear his voice and open the door. So although the church as a whole did not respond, if any individual would respond, he would open the door. Oftentimes this verse is used as an invitation to an unbeliever to receive Jesus as Savior. But it also applies directly to any church that is apathetic, which means shows no interest, no enthusiasm, no concern, like the church at Laodicea with Jesus. Jesus is not willing to restore them to a better state, but they need to demonstrate their willingness to obey Jesus, to come back to him. Moving on to the next verse, verse 21. Going back to verse 21, it states to the one who is victorious, I will give you the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. In verse 21, Jesus continues his promise to whoever responds to his call for cordial welcome and thereby overcoming lukewarm faith. He promised to give that repentant overcomer the honor of sitting with him on his throne. Jesus mentioned that he sit that he sat down with his father on his, on his throne. Hebrews eight one described Jesus' present position as that of sitting at the right hand of the throne of the Father in heaven. However, someday Jesus will leave that throne in heaven and occupy a throne, a physical throne on the earth. The angel in Luke, in Luke 1 verses 32 through 33, the angel Gabriel told Mary that her son Jesus would be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no And moving on to the next verse, the final verse, verse number 22, 
which is the final verse of chapter three of the book of Revelation. And we'll conclude our look at the at Jesus's letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor, which are also instructive to us believers today. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the spirit says to the churches. Verse 22 extend Jesus's final challenge to the seven churches of Asia Minor. The challenge extend to us today as well, which should we should heed Jesus messages to the seven churches. And to recap those message, we can learn from his message to the church at Ephesus to keep our love for the Lord fresh and fervent. We can learn from his message to the church at Smyrna to be faithful unto death. From his message to the church at Pergamum, we can learn to reject sexual immorality and the rule of others over the church. From what Jesus said to the church at Thyatira, we can learn to hold fast to the faith until Jesus comes. From Jesus' message to the church at Sardis, we can learn to remember the truth and stay alert. Jesus' words to the church at Philadelphia teaches us to endure with patience the race that is, that is set before us. And then finally, from the message to the church at Laodicea, we can learn to avoid complacency, reliance on materialism, and to keep the door open for Jesus to enter every area of our lives. So this now completes our study, our verse-by-verse study of the book of Revelation chapter 3. On the next episode, we will start chapter 4, where John starts to reveal the things that are, are to come, the future. Let's pray. Father God, in the mighty name of the, Jesus, we thank you for being the great, awesome God that you are. We thank you for Lord Jesus. We thank you for this time to study your word in the book of Revelation. We thank you for the messages to the seven churches that we can apply and use and adhere to today. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that guides and comforts us and empowers us to do those things that you would have us to do. Lord, we thank you that we can call upon your son named Jesus and be saved. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for being our Lord, our Savior. We thank you for offering your holy, precious, and godly blood for our sins. We thank you in the mighty name of Jesus, and until next time, amen and amen.